Welcome into the Monkey Business Show. I forgot a damn tagline. I forgot to come up with a new tagline for this week. I just realized that, right? As I hit the button to hit go, I said, man, I didn't even do the least amount of work that I was supposed to do. Thing one that I was supposed to do, I left it off the table and forgot to do it. So no tagline. So you were going to come up with a new one or use the same one that you used last time? Well, I could just say, welcome to monkey business, where the money is funny and the world's full of dummies. Yeah, yeah. that which, was the one. I don't know. I think I like it. Maybe we should have some viewer participation and throw out a few and they can vote on it. Yeah. Well, hit us in the, in the email, monkeybizshow at gmail.com. If you have any suggestions for taglines for the show, uh, we'll get into another listener email later on in the show. But first, I'm Aaron Hodges, along with Richie Bennett and Eric Salzman. Eric Salzman is the world's latest GameStop millionaire. This thing is booming again. Congratulations, buddy. Thank you. Thank you. I, uh, I, was, I was working frantically yesterday. I wasn't looking at the market. I, I saw at one point, I said, oh, good, GameStop's up. You know, I think it started there on 45, and it was up. Ooh, wow, look at that. It's getting close to 50. And I went back to work, and then... Uh, about three o'clock, it's probably like three o'clock um, New York time. I get a Bloomberg message from a buddy. He goes, see GME? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's up like five, six bucks there, right? It's up 10%. He's like, look. And I'm like, and I'm thinking it's 20, right? I'm like, oh, shit. And I pull it up. I'm like, 80? And then you watch 90? <laughs> Halts trading because it's up over 100%. Like, what the <laughs> So yeah, I, I, yeah. So now am I? Um, we, it's should Eric buy or sell? That's yeah, the where, question. Where is it trading now? It opened around one sixty nine. Um, wow! So I actually i put a i put a sell order in at one ninety five. So we'll see what wow. happens. Uh, so is it? Uh, what what odds do you put that you're going to get out of that uh, at one ninety five today? Gosh, I would say fifty fifty. Like it could either it could either be back to ninety or it could be a two hundred. I mean, it just uh, and I think what happened was, and we'll, I know Aaron, you're going to play it later or soon. Is the uh, you know the the famous battle between uh, Portnoy and Barstool and, and Vlad <laughs> Denyev. And um, one thing I love what Portnoy did is he backed him into a corner, and he's like, "Look, you say all right, it's not a liquidity issue anymore, like you said, and you're saying you're all proud that you raised three point four billion dollars, so this shouldn't be a problem again, right?" And I think Vlad was like, "Yeah, it won't be a problem." And I think these Reddit guys are like, "All right, let's see, if, let's see, let's see if you're up to your word, motherfucker." And they start buying the stocks yeah, all over. Right? Yeah. I was going to say that if that thing hits 200 today, he's going to have some similar issues. So, I mean, if since you since you brought it up, I might as well play it. This is from what Dave Portnoy, Portnoy show or podcast? I, yeah, I this, he does his uh, Davey Day Trader on Barstool, so he got he got Vlad to come on. The big Robin Hood CEO, which is a pretty good get. Maybe we'll, maybe he'll come on the monkey business show. Hey, so. I bet he I bet he would. I bet he would. I bet he, he, would he seems a little thirsty. So uh, <laughs> here, here's a clip of it. To prevent uh, a larger problem, and it was a systemic problem. Lots of people restricted buying. I, or, but but or you understand food. the number one thing that people generally ask and say, and it's going in a circle. Which, and I don't want to go too long. What you just said is true. You had to. I, I believe that you had the. Even though you set it off the other way by being like it wasn't a liquidity issue, but if you just did, if you didn't, if you just held it and didn't allow buying and selling, that would seem like you had the interest of the little guy. 
because you did something and gave a huge advantage to the big guy that is the exact opposite of helping the little guy. You killed the little guy. You killed the little guy. <laughs> Look, all I can say is we're going to make sure this doesn't happen again. Uh, I tell you that I'm working on it. We raised the $3.4 billion, which goes a long way. Um, and we're going to make sure that uh, we're better about this and we serve our customers when they need us to. I was telling Eric before we came on, Richie, that I may never forgive you guys for making me watch that interview for show prep. Uh, just two really detestable characters in my mind. I, I just don't, I don't like Dave, whatever. It is what it is. Uh, He's a Boston fan. Yeah, maybe that's a bit of it. Yeah. And then Vlad. Oh, this guy. Yeah, he's, he's a sociopath. I mean, uh, we're. I, I think he really believes what he's saying. I think he really does believe he's got the little guy's interest at heart. And the whole reason for his, his uh, multi-billion dollar business is to, you know, free trading for everybody. And it's, you know, and we've, we've gone on many times in the show and, um, and it's nice to have Charlie Munger basically go on. You know, it's, not, it's nice to be on the same side as Charlie Munger on an issue. And Charlie Munger's like, I mean, I, I think Robin Hood is a criminal enterprise. Wow. Um, and if Robin Hood wanted to, uh, you know what, maybe the, when we listen to the, a, the AOC clip, um, we could talk about what Robin Hood could do if they really cared about the, um, about the, the, the little trader or the, the, the smaller uh, retail trader. The problem there is they might be out of business or because <laughs> <or laughs> then, then Schwab and Vanguard and the other guys, TD Ameritrade who play, who play nice, right? E-Trade, they, they'd run them over, right? Like they, they, they'd never have great execution. Guys would not, you know, it just, it just wouldn't work. They're not going to do that. They're going to, they'll, 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 they'll get sued or, or banned by the SEC before they quit and and not take this money. That's really how you, how you see this playing out, huh? Yeah, because there's so many backers, right? Like the guys who funded this thing, the private equity guys who funded this thing, they see it too. They're like, dude, you, you really do this? You, they couldn't believe it, right? They're like, they're like, you re- this is your business model and it happens? Yeah, watch. Let me turn on this. <laughs> and all these little kids are going to come in and buy like crazy. It's- and they're like, rubbing hands right they're like dude this is huge so if this thing didn't happen right if this GameStop thing incident didn't happen the amc they, they, they're gonna rue the day that this all went down or days that this all went down because if this had just gone under the radar they would have probably been public by now or close to it right so they would have oh, sure. ipo yeah Brad and his boys would have run away with all kinds of cash yeah yeah um, and then anything after that, they could give a hell. You know, they could give a shit. So now, um, one of his appeasement offerings, Vlad, is he's going to hire more financial advisors. So I think in a future episode, what we'll do is a nice little skit where I'll apply for the job as financial advisor. And you guys, and Vlad and the other guy, I always call him the other guy, I feel bad, but there's two main guys. Vlad is the big spokesman and the other guy. And you can like interview me as to why I should be a financial advisor for, for Robin Hood. And that would be uh, high, high comedy right there. What I was thinking was, you know, let's, and this is where if we're sitting next to AOC and, I'd like to be sitting next to AOC, any, <laughs> sure. any venue. But if I was sitting next to AOC, I'd be, with the payment for order flow, I'd be like, look, Vlad, 
you can keep doing your payment for order flow. You can keep sending it. You know, uh, let's say we all buy into the fact that high frequency trading market makers are liquidity providers and don't front run and don't actually suck liquidity out of the market, which is which is the um, which is the argument. So, Vlad, if you really want to be a man of the people, and we'll give you that high frequency trading is cool and it adds liquidity, just do the same formula as every other, as, as all your competitors do. Just do that. I don't know why and, you're questioning whether or not he's a man of the people. He showed up on that show with a Lakers uh, shirt that's a there's hat that said Taco Tuesday. That dude is cool. He's every man, dude. What are you talking oh. about? <laughs> that dude, like, I've never seen such a douche trying to be cool. Ugh. You know, you realize he paid like a publicist. He, he probably paid a publicist 50 grand to come up with that outfit. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. They were like, no, no, the Lakers. Yeah. The Lakers taco Tuesday. Yeah. Everybody loves that. Put that yeah. on. Whereas he should have showed up in a suit oh. and been like, I'm sorry. And we're going to change our way. Yeah. So that, that's right. what he should have Right. And, and so he's talking to Portnoy, right? But behind Portnoy are about a million stoolies, right? And and I don't know if you ever read when they when they just tee off on like is uh, one one of the bloggers is I remember Glenny Balls and Glenny Balls is just this fat dude who walks around and he and he he uh, goes into restaurants and he 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 uh, he, he, um, he gives an opinion on the beer and on the burger. What it's beer and burgers. And I mean they just before they went to made it like kind of a, a special thing to be able to make comments. Hundred comments every time Glenny Balls came out, and everyone was just calling him fat, die fat. Yeah, you're disgusting. I mean, so like this guy goes onto that they, that platform thinking he's gonna walk on there with a fucking Taco Tuesday shirt hat and that the Lakers no. shirt, and somehow they're gonna like it. Just made it worse. Like Richie said, he should have come on looking like Alec Baldwin, <laughs> you know, from uh, Glen Gary, Glen Ross, and just fucking, you know. Fuck you, Dave. I've got you have a hundred million. I got I got five billion. All right. How's that? All right. So I, I, I right. enough of the Portnoy. I can't take it anymore. Uh, I think it's a comedian, uh, John Fugelsang, who said something to the effect of, "I'm a fan of Jesus, but his fan club scares me," and that's the way I feel about the stoolies. Um, but let's let's play this the clip from AOC that you talked about a little bit, and then we're gonna bring on Kevin Doherty, a Wall Street veteran who specializes in emerging markets and also. Richie's roommate. How's that for a tease? It's a it's a good one, but I just want to interject um, for all you wise guys out there who think that this is not a an actual guest interview. It's just my pal that I invited <laughs> on. I never told Kevin that we were doing this podcast. He found us on his own, right? And emailed us in and wrote like a four paragraph email explaining his credentials as to why he should be a guest. And then I made the executive decision to can our <laughs> guest that was going to be on. Mm -hmm. No disrespect, that person <laughs> will back on again. But uh, it was so important and so compelling, uh, Kevin's topic, that uh, we bumped Kevin up to the uh, today's slot. And uh, yes, he is a pal and a, and a roommate, but I did not ask him to be a guest on this show. He found us. I got to press Kevin a little bit for a Richie roommate story. Uh, after this, but here's the AOC from the GameStop Robinhood hearings last week. Out, Robinhood generates much of its revenue from the payment for order flow arrangements with market makers like Citadel, um, as well as Two Sigma and Virtue. And in 2016, the SEC highlighted ways that the payment for order flow created a quote 
potential conflict of interest with a broker's duty of best execution. And then one of the ideas that the commission floated in 2016 for addressing these conflicts of interest was to require that brokers pass on the proceeds of a payment for order flow. Now, um, earlier one of my colleagues, uh, San, uh, Representative San Nicolas, said that uh, Robinhood owes its customers a lot more than an apology, and I happen to agree with him. I believe that the decisions made by you and this company have harmed your, your customers. Um, Mr. Tenev, would you be willing to commit today to voluntarily pass on the proceeds of the payment for order flow to Robinhood customers? Congresswoman, I, I appreciate that question. When, uh, when the statement you referred to was made, uh, I believe 2015 or 2016. It was Tuesday, it was a taco Tuesday, the I think. Industry to drop commissions and replicate our business model, which made payment. So is that a, 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 I should take that uh, as a no. You're not willing to pass on the proceeds of payment for order flow to your customers? When, when uh, the other brokers dropped. No, I'm just talking about today, right now. Payment for order flow, Congresswoman, allows for commission-free trading. In the mm -hmm. context of trading commissions, um, it's a much larger source of revenue in the past than payment. Mr. Teneff, I, I apologize, and it's I I don't want to be rude. I just have limited time. Um, but if removing the revenues that you make from a payment for order flow uh, would cause the removal of free commissions, doesn't that mean that trading on Robinhood isn't actually free to begin with? Because you're just hiding the cost, the cost in terms of potentially poor execution or the cost of lost rebates to your customers. So certainly, Congresswoman, Robinhood is a for-profit business and needs to generate some revenue to, to, to pay for the costs of running this business. People were initially skeptical that the model, even with payment for order flow, would work when you remove commissions. And I think we've proven that otherwise by making this the standard model by which brokerages operate now. Richie? Um, I'm not a general, like if you asked me if I was a fan of AOC, I might laugh. Um, we try not to go too much into politics here, but like half the time I think she's nuts. Um, I probably, and Eric probably can back me up on this, like if I was in her chair, I don't think I could have done better in that question. Like, like that's the question. Like that's, that's the one, like, like she should play that. Like, like they keep having rumors that she's going to run against Chuck Schumer for Senate in New York. She should use that clip as like, as like a, a campaign commercial because like she sounded so sharp and like, I thought she was just reading, which she probably was, but they, they, you know, they have backers that help them with the questions, but then she was like, well-versed because she went back at him. Right. And like, and she's like hitting him with like, no, 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 you're not answering my question, but not just that. She like knew what she was talking about. Like she was right. like, now, what you're saying is blah, 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 but you're not refunding. And he had to be squirming at yeah. that question. Like he, like he probably figured somebody was going to ask on that topic it wasn't going to be her that he thought was going to ask him. So I, I, was, I was impressed. Maybe she listens to the show. I, I, yeah, maybe <laughs> AOC will tune in. Probably not. I, I thought that was a, a great question that he did not answer because he can't because he'd be out of business if he answered Right. Her. But I like just, just one quick one before we bring Kevin on is that if you notice, he was basically saying it sounded like a non-for-profit business, right? 
Like yeah. we just do this to cover yeah. the costs. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. And somehow people have got you valued at $12 billion because you're a, you're a non-for-profit business. Like, like the United way, like the United way is worth $12 billion, right? <laughs> and they stole a lot of money too, right? <laughs> the ASPCA, they, they make both okay. of <laughs> All right. All right. Well, let's bring in Kevin. We've been waiting for it. Here it is. We'll add him to the stream here. Welcome to the show, Kevin. How are you doing, man? I'm I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Great to see you again, Richie. Hey, Kev. How are you, buddy? I'm doing great. Looking good. So we'll get, we'll give uh, all the credentials and stuff in a second, Richie. Mm. We'll we'll, uh, we'll have you uh, big up your your man here first. But Kevin, we have to uh, get a little bit of dirt dig into this roommate situation with uh, Richie. We have to start here. How old were you guys when you guys are living together? Uh, so it was about, what, 25 years ago, 25, 27 years ago. So I was fresh out of college and moved to New York and uh, knew nobody, but I uh, was in a training program and they put out a list of um, potential roommates, people who are looking for a roommate. And the person who uh, was at that time Rich's roommate was moving out. And so that spot opened up and I just, you know, cold called him one day and said, uh, I'm moving to New York. What do you think? Should we be roommates? And uh, he, you know, kindly or crazily agreed to that. So, Kevin, um, just to interject before you came on the air, um, I explained, I don't know if you heard, but I explained to people how um, I did not mention to you that we're doing a podcast. This is a real guest here, folks, because Kevin went out and found us and sent me an email and us an email to the show. Yeah, I did hear that. And uh, I found out about the show uh, actually through uh, Matt Taibbi's uh, letter. Uh, We talked about speaking with Eric. And so uh, I recognized the monkey business brand. From, oh, the world uh, <laughs> exactly. And so I uh, sought you guys out and, and listened to a couple of episodes and uh, obviously was uh, thrilled to see what you guys are doing and uh, thought that we could have an interesting conversation uh, about it, crypto. Oh, Richie and, and uh, Kevin, I'm sorry to interrupt real quick. So is this the apartment? Is this the one on? Yes, the, pit. The, the apartment. The apartment. So, pit. so can I? Can I? Thank you for bringing us back there, Eric, because I felt like they were trying to wiggle out of it. Yeah. So this so apartment has been in the Bennett family for like, like. Yeah, it was. It was <laughs> in there until they took it away because it was a rent uh, stabilized. Uh, it was a rent stabilized apartment, and then finally, after like twenty years, it went off the rent stabilization, which was a shame. Um, but if I could give a PG rated story. Uh, about Kevin and uh, one of his uh, days at at the apartment on 46th Street. Is that okay, Aaron? Proceed. Okay, so um, it was uh, April of 95, okay? Um, This was the first year, and it's very apropos because it's currently Lent right now in in the Christian religion. And um, from Ash Wednesday to Easter, Sunday is considered Lent. And for the first time in 1995, I actually gave up drinking for Lent. 
flash forward now, not to get too crazy, but it's now 26 years later. We are in Lent right now, and I have continued to do this for 26 years. I knew you had a glow about you right now. Yeah, see? Less puffy face, you know, <laughs> a little bit less puffy. And, um, however, that was the first year that I did it. So Kevin, a graduate of the University of California at Los Angeles, UCLA, was a huge fan, huge fan. So Kevin said, the basketball team is in the finals of the March Madness, the national championship game. He was going to have a party. Okay. And I said, no, no problem, dude. Go, go for it. You know, some of his alumni pals or his buddies. And I said, great. I, I'm going to go to a different party, but uh, I'll be across town. And, you know, good luck to the Bruins. Okay. <laughs> so they win. They win. Okay. Um, I come home stone sober, right, at like 1 o'clock, right? Everybody's at the, my party is having a good old time. I walk in. So you have to understand this is an old apartment and the, um, it was actually a huge one bedroom apartment. And my first roommate and I, cause I had had that place since 91, 91, I think 91. Um, we put up, we basically built a wall halfway in the living room and like smashed it in. We wedged it in. We didn't build a permanent wall, but we, <laughs> we wedged in this wall to make two bedrooms. The <laughs> living room was now a bedroom. It was small, but the big bedroom was nice. And the bedroom so we, became we, the living room? Yeah, so the living room was now split in half. It's now half a living room yeah. and half of a, a bedroom. So the wall is not sturdy, right? It's sturdy, it's up, but it's not a, it's not a, a, a structure that's, that's thick, right? It's, it's two pieces of wood on either side. So I'm looking, I come in, Evan is like... Passed out on, on the ground, okay? He's on the ground. And I look, and there's a massive, like, hole. Like a body, it looked like a body, a hole in the wall. Like the wall that we put up. So I'm like, wow, what, what went on here? So the next morning, Kevin wakes up, apologetic. I felt bad. He, he was like, listen, some of my buddies, like we got really excited. And one of the things that they wanted to do was run through the wall. <laughs> <laughs> so, so in my closet, in my closet, I was like, whatever, dude, I, I don't care. In my closet, there was this big, like, I have no idea where we got this thing. It was a huge painting of like an old pirate. <laughs> And there was, it was like a little little uh, name tag on the bottom. It said Uncle Mike. I have no <laughs> idea what that was. The pirate was named Uncle the Mike? The pirate was Uncle Mike. We placed the painting over the hole. <laughs> it fit perfectly. That painting never came down. Nobody knew about that wall. Everything was good. UCLA champions. Everything was good. Oh. So I hope I didn't hurt your uh, professional career there, Kevin, by telling crazy stories. 
Yeah, hang on a second. I need to write down the time mark we're on right now. So I tell people to start listening <laughs> instead of earlier. So all clean fun, all clean fun. Probably not the intro you were imagining, Kevin. But uh, <laughs> tell us a little bit about your uh, experience with investing and with cryptocurrencies and emerging markets. Tell us about a little bit about your experience there. Yeah, so uh, after leaving New York and um, the uh, apartment with a giant hole in the wall, <laughs> I, um, I moved. Uh, I moved to Moscow in uh, 1997 and uh, worked on the financial markets there, and uh, then basically for the next 20 years uh, worked in emerging markets primarily, uh, both on the sell side and buy side, and. Um, the thing that I think is really uh, critical to know about the way emerging markets work, and I saw this repeatedly in my career throughout different markets I worked on, is that uh, they go through this this um, this transition from being a new market with weak infrastructure and um, you know, dominated by uh, specialists dominated by speculators, and you don't get the uh, mutual funds, pension funds, insurance companies investing in those markets initially because the market structure is so weak and they just can't participate. And over time, as those markets mature, as you get better exchanges, as custody becomes sorted out, as regulations become more clear, uh, the market evolves and you get more and more investors and more types of investors coming into that market, those markets. And as a result, it pushes up prices, pushes up valuations and lowers volatility in these markets. And it's just this pattern that, that gets repeated over and over again. And um, I first really became uh, aware of Bitcoin in about 2013. And at the time, I was advising some big commodity companies on how to hedge China risk. And um, one thing that uh, in an emerging market, if a, company or a country has a financial crisis, typically their currency is going to devalue. And so you look to hedge the currency. In China, you couldn't do that because they had capital controls uh, and it was extremely difficult to hedge the currency. But one way I found to uh, hedge the currency risk is through buying Bitcoin. And the reason for that is because at that time, Bitcoin uh, was very heavily used by Chinese. And they were using it in, in large degree to get around capital controls. So mm -hmm. buy Bitcoin in Beijing or Shanghai, sell it in Vancouver and buy a house in, in Canada. And, you know, there you go. You get around the capital controls. And then in about 2017, I realized that cryptocurrency and Bitcoin was a lot more than just a way to get around capital controls. That there was actually a very real and interesting use case with uh, not only Bitcoin, but uh, then Ethereum was emerging as something very interesting as a smart contract platform and, and other things in the ecosystem. And, but the, the really, the, the kind of aha moment for me is that I realized that it reminded me very, very much of early stage emerging markets, that you had similar dynamics of very weak market infrastructure, big problems with exchanges, big problems with custody, uh, these were very immature, and they were the type of problems that would keep institutional investors away from those markets 
because you know if you are even most hedge funds you know they they can't self custody the equities or bonds that they buy but back then if you bought bitcoin that's what you had to do you either had to self custody it and then one of your employees could hop on a plane to uh, the caymans and you'd never see him or your bitcoin again <laughs> or you had to leave your bitcoin on an exchange which was probably in an offshore jurisdiction unregulated and exchanges were getting hacked on a, a, a fairly regular basis. And so this poor market infrastructure meant that institutional investors couldn't participate in that market, even if they wanted to. But over time, as these issues got dealt with, I could see a case where we would see the same type of pattern that we saw repeatedly in emerging markets, where the market infrastructure gets improved and these new types of investors, these new tranches of investors, if you if you will, come into the market and that demand, that money that they bring in pushes up valuations. And I think certainly over the last year, we've seen that uh, happen. The infrastructure problems that existed three, four years ago are, are basically solved. Uh, there are exchanges that are regulated, uh, that are... Um, that are safe for an institutional investor to use. There are third-party custodians. Uh, there are ways to hedge your position through things like futures and options on exchanges like the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. Um, there are, and now this has really turned into a flood over the last few months where uh, it's certainly not a week, but almost not a day goes by when there's a major announcement of an institutional quality uh, infrastructure player coming into the market. And I think one of the biggest ones was last week when BNY Mellon, which is one of the biggest custodians in the world for traditional assets, they announced that by the end of this year, they're going to custody cryptocurrency. So when, you, when so, you say, when you say custody, what does that mean? That means that, so if you're a hedge fund or a mutual fund and you're buying uh, equities or fixed income, it has to be held somewhere by a custodian. And it's your prime broker, or uh, in the case of BNY Mellon, they're the biggest custodian in the world. So they actually hold the shares. They hold the bonds. You know, if you are, um, uh, you know, Bridgewater doesn't actually have physical possession of the equities and fixed income and currency that they hold. It's held at a custodian. And, Brid and that's Bridgewater, just uh, Bridgewater is a, a very large hedge, the largest hedge yeah. fund. So I just, I just right. want to back it up for a second. Uh, you've listened to a few episodes. You know I represent the dummies. I am a dummy. <laughs> um, so you're saying basically, so Eric and I have talked about this for a second before we got on here, but uh, it used to be, now I know, now, now that I've talked to Eric, that when you're talking about emerging markets, <clears throat> I, always, I, I always used to hear that and think, oh, it's a, it's a new industry or something that's just getting traded now, but... Now I understand that you're talking about developing countries that um, are That's basically right. trying to figure out their financial infrastructure, right? Right. That's right. So okay. Russia, Brazil, India, uh, those countries that don't have the long history or deep financial markets in that countries like the United States or the United Kingdom or Japan do. So you're seeing a lot of parallels between your early experience in those markets and to Bitcoin, you're seeing a lot of parallels to how that's developing as well. That's right. That's right. 
and it's really exploded over the last year. That's really when this this major transition has happened. First, that the infrastructure was put in place, that the different types of investors like hedge funds, macro hedge funds that would normally just trade equities, fixed income currencies. Um, now they can put their money in Bitcoin, uh, primarily Bitcoin, but uh, very soon in other cryptocurrencies as well. Mm-hmm. And they can hold it in a secure way. They can trade it in a secure way. And so it becomes one of those assets that they can actually look at and invest in. And a really important tipping point happened last year in May. And um, there's a, a very famous hedge fund guy named Paul Tudor Jones. And he is universally respected. Uh, I would say Eric and Rich, you would probably agree. He's on the Mount Rushmore uh, the hedge fund legends. Wow. Just wow. So, right up there with Vlad, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Vlad, I think is might need a job cleaning, uh, Mount Rushmore. That's uh, a different uh, type of custodian. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, so this guy who, uh, a fully traditional markets guy, he wrote in his investor letter in May, it was all about Bitcoin. And he said, um, that he was concerned that inflation was going to be a problem over the medium to long term, so in the next five to 10 years. And he could see a case where the best performing asset in that environment is going to be Bitcoin. And that Bitcoin will play the role that in previous times of high inflation, like the 1970s, gold played. And uh, so he went through, and it was an excellent letter, is basically... um, this thesis of Bitcoin as digital gold is something that uh, most people that are um, dedicated to the cryptocurrency industry, certainly the people who are believers in Bitcoin, uh, that is a, the, probably the, the core premise that they have and the core reason to be bullish. And now he was saying the same thing that the, right. the industry was saying. Kevin, um so, but the one thing the issue is that so Bitcoin and all of the cryptos, they, they, there's a finite amount. There, there will be a finite amount of it. Right. So right. which is different than different than in other words, could if we start relying too much on Bitcoin, let's say it's five years from now, whenever, we're relying on a on a monetary source that is has a finite supply that brings the other instead of inflation, you could get a deflate. Would that create maybe a deflationary event? Well, when you say rely, uh, it's yeah, like I, you're saying I guess, the, um, the financial system relying on it. Yeah. It's like, well, I guess because people, is it, is it going to be a currency at some point or is it just good? Is it going to be a store of value? Like it's going to be, like you say, it's digital gold yeah. and it's a store of value. It's a store of value. And so it should not impact the wider financial system. And frankly, the, um, the, the money printing and the zero interest rates policies by the central banks have unquestionably been the major and, and almost certainly the primary reason why Bitcoin prices have exploded as they have over the last year. This could be an ignorant question. Because we, 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 uh, <laughs> we were talking about this a, about a month ago and, um, so the bit, the value of Bitcoin, like all else equal, like, shouldn't it be the, the activity within the blockchain? Like the more that the blockchain grows, right, that's more computational power that's needed by the miners to, to, to um, 
Not really, no. Um, okay. So I think what you're referring to, and J.P. Morgan has written about this, or Morgan Stanley, uh, or probably both, actually. And their analysis, their their fundamental framework is wrong. And what their analysis uh, is uh, trying to show is that the price of Bitcoin should follow the cost of mining Bitcoin. And that's not actually how it's acted. What happens is the cost of mining Bitcoin follows the price of Bitcoin. And I, I, I'll try and explain it. In, in, um, it gets a little complicated, but the way that uh, the blockchain for Bitcoin works is that every 10 minutes, about approximately every 10 minutes, there's a new block that gets created. And in that block is a record of every transaction that's happened in that 10-minute period. Mm. And that gets added to every other block in a chain. Therefore, that's the blockchain. It's just a series of blocks all stacked on top of each other. And what the miners do is uh, they compete to be the one that is allowed to create that record, to create that block. And that competition happens through um, a basically a brute force computer solution solving a math problem. So what is embedded in the code of Bitcoin is uh, there is a math problem that needs to be solved. And by solving, and it, there's a different problem every 10 minutes. And the first computer that solves that math problem gets the right to create that block. And the reward for doing that, right now it's 12.5 Bitcoin gets given to the miner that solves that problem. And so 900 Bitcoin are created every day if a block forms every 10 minutes. And so as the price of Bitcoin goes higher and higher, the miners are incentivized to add more computational power to the network because they want to solve that problem faster. And what it, it, there's basically an equilibrium now where there's a, a, a generally steady RO, return on investment, return on equity for these miners. And they know based on the current price of Bitcoin, how many computers it's worth putting into the network to try and solve this problem. Because there are hundreds of thousands, millions of computers that are, that are involved in this. And what it boils down to effectively is what the cost of electricity is. So if you're paying two cents per megawatt hour, it might be profitable to, to try and mine Bitcoin. If in you're Texas, paying... Sorry to interject. Uh, in Texas, it's a little more, right, Eric? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we forgot to even mention that. You have heat and uh, water this week, right? I do. I've running water and running water that can be, that can be drunk or drank. And, and, and you, you have less clothing on, I noticed. Less you were like right? pretty uh, sweatered up last time. That's true. Yeah. He was looking like an giant, Eskimo. Yeah, giant hoodie on. Yeah, this isn't sorry, one of those sorry. Zoom calls, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we're a relatively new show, Kevin. Uh, okay, <laughs> you got to find your audience. <laughs> Richie, is this the guy you were living with? Do you even recognize this guy? Of course I do. Of course. <laughs> Um, but anyway, so just to kind of cut it short on the mining, the um, the mining doesn't really impact the price. And uh, what is really impacting the price, uh, especially this year, is the, the new investors that are coming into the market and the adoption. And it was really that, that Paul Tudor Jones letter, what it did is it made it okay – 
to be a traditional Wall Street guy or a gal and invest in Bitcoin. Because before that letter, there was career risk attached to stepping out and telling your LPs or telling the market, hey, I'm going to invest in Bitcoin. Because there's still a, a pretty big, there was a big stigma around that. And But once he published his investor letter saying, hey, we're in, I'm in the trade, then suddenly if you're a hedge funder, you don't have to justify to your LPs anymore why you're buying Bitcoin. Because you can just say, look, Paul Tudor, this isn't just a bunch of you know, crazies and millennials who've never traded anything else in their life besides you know, baseball cards or STDs. You know, this is Paul Tudor Jones. <laughs> so... You know, it, and all of a sudden, that really flipped a switch. And the, wow. the inflow since then, in, you know, especially over the fourth quarter of last year, I mean, there, it was almost every week where there was an announcement of another big hedge fund that said, hey, we put on a position. And these were big positions. There's you know, $500 million positions or more. Kevin, I thought your explanation of, or just your thesis was, was brilliant. I mean, I, when, I, I, just the whole comparison to emerging markets and how it started and and rich and i both have buddies i have a buddy matt kennedy and he was he used to tell me stories about like he was in charge of south america and it was mm. literally bringing in bundles of cash take it was you know and he had a great time but you could be kidnapped and killed at any moment in time too <laughs> um or end up in jail and yeah. but then as you as you lay it out it's like it just like that and that's what um, aaron and i were talking a little before we went on was you know now you have like the largest sovereign wealth fund in the world. You have like a Norges bank who's out there and they own, they own Brazil, they own Colombia, they own like, it's become huge institutional trading and, but it took time to develop that. And as the infrastructure and the real call it real money, as opposed to fast money gets involved, that's when it becomes, and that stabilizes because right now the biggest thing we always ask is, well, do I want to be in something that can go down 20% a day? Right. However, like the way you, you pointed it out is that it's, it's going from a market where it's a totally tradable market guys. You know, I, I, I buy it at 45, I'll sell it at 46 and, and repeat wash, rinse, repeat. This is more like I buy it at 45 and I, I hold on to it cause it's going 70 or I, I hold it because I'm using it as a, as a, an alternative to, to let's say to, to fiat currencies and things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, that, that's a, I mean, you, I think your thesis and the way you lay that out is freaking like crystal clear and i i have a feeling that that's that, that could be what, what what mr jones did maybe thought along the same lines of hey this is you know that this is following along the same path of, of other markets when they start and then as they mature so thanks great so kevin um so from all the layouts that you've had here um i sense that you are very bullish on bitcoin am i yes. correct Yes. So, of course, that's my job is to be the thorn in everybody's side. Sure. Uh, So what do you say? What say you to those who say, like I saw the guy, the black swan guy, Rubini, right? He's always like gloom and doom. If you listen to him forever, you're dead. Um, You know, he gets it right every 20 years, right? Um, So... But oh boy, when he gets it right, yeah, he's, <laughs> he's on every TV show. Right? We'll hear about it. Yeah, um, but I, I do like the theory that it can't really be completely accepted until 
you can really use it. Now, I know, like, you can buy a nice house like these guys put in their real estate listings, X million for my big mansion, or X amount of Bitcoins. Lamborghini, you want a Lamborghini, I'll take Bitcoin, right? It, it seems to be dealing in the higher end of uh, people. But my thinking is, it, does it really not take hold until you can go down to the grocery store and buy some milk with it? Or, or what have you like, like that's, that's, that's the big negative. I'm not saying that's mine, but I can see where people are like negative because they're like, yeah, it's just a tradable thing. Like I can go to a store. I can't go to the grocery store, but I can go with my gold bars, cash them in and, and, and go right to the store. And, and, you know, gold has some sort of intrinsic value right now. It seems like Bitcoin is only a traded instrument. Do you think that's going to evolve? Um, it may evolve, but I don't think that's its use case now or its use case in the near future. And um, it, it, it's really it's a financial asset because you don't take your shares of Apple or your T-bill and go to the grocery store with that either. If we were thinking about infrastructure, where, where would it sit? Let's say it's three years from now and this we're we're in, it's become institutionalized and we're at yeah. Citibank. Is it on the, the foreign currency desk or is it on the commodity desk? Bitcoin uh, at that point, it's still probably on the commodity desk. Um, that It's been ruled a commodity by the CFTC. Mm -hmm. It trades on the uh, CME with other commodities. And I, I'm just from a uh, institutional bureaucratic uh, inertia perspective once thing is labeled one thing it's it's unlikely it gets relabeled into something else uh, right. but it's the the other part of the ecosystem and i want to say one thing actually that, that i think is important when richie was saying that you know he's he wants to raise some objections i the way i look at bitcoin is is kind of the same way i look at everything else it's through the lenses of risk, reward, and probabilities. I'm not here pounding the table telling you that Bitcoin is going to take over the world because, frankly, there's a lot of things that could get in the way of uh, the blue sky scenarios that you hear from the, uh, the Uber bulls. Uh, there's regulatory risk without question. There's still technological risk. Um, the Bitcoin code has never been uh, corrupted or broken. But that doesn't mean it's impossible that that happened. So, but the, this bigger uh, idea of decentralization, which would take you know an entire other show to go through, uh, is it has brought some very interesting real-world use cases that already exist today. And the one that uh, I think is is most interesting in the near term, and by that I mean the next three years, is this whole concept of decentralized finance. And uh, this starts to get tricky. It's very difficult to use right now. The average person wouldn't be able to use it. But but ultimately what it means is, you know, right now, I'm sure you all have bank accounts. I have a bank account. I don't earn any interest on it whatsoever. No matter how much money I put in it, it's 0.1%, something like that. But there are these uh, decentralized protocols. So uh, it, it, think of it as a, something like Ethereum. It's built on top of Ethereum. And it's a protocol that arranges lending and borrowing. So you can put your money on that, lend it to somebody else at 8%, and you get 6% of that 
and the people, the, the protocol tokens keep the 2% spread between the 6% and 8%. So now all of us, instead of getting 0% at our local bank, we can earn 6% through this platform. And this is something that, you know, it's appeals to a lot of people. It certainly appeals to people who think that the banking system is not, uh, not operated in a fair way. People who are not receiving any interest, but they see, you know, the bank's still charging 15% for credit cards or 8% for personal loans and see these bank executives walk away with, you know, $50 million paychecks. Instead, all of that lending and borrowing can be and is being now, there's something like $60 billion today that's locked into these protocols, meaning there's $60 billion of people like me that have been lent into these and borrowed out by somebody else, and I'm earning 6%, they're paying 8%. And if you own the token that drives this protocol, you earn the 2% spread. And so that's a, that's, yeah. Oh, I just have to interject because um, in a roundabout way, you, uh, you you may have insulted the intelligence and the brilliance of Jamie Dimon. So I just want to <laughs> just want to protect it. If this was CNBC right now, like Andrew Sorkin would be freaking going nuts. <laughs> yeah, and, and again, you know, saying that it, the fact that he's got you know two trillion retail deposits that he pays zero interest on and lends out, <laughs> like you're saying, that's not brilliant. <laughs> and if the look, if the banks were paying even three percent interest, if interest rates were normalized, then uh, what we're seeing right now in Bitcoin and cryptocurrency would not be happening, or would not be happening this quickly. There's no mm-hmm. question about that. So, so another question, Kevin, it just popped into my head. We keep talking about Bitcoin. Is mm-hmm. Bitcoin the one? You know, you got these other guys around. Like, like MySpace was before Facebook. Like, yeah. can you tell which one's going to emerge as the cryptocurrency or are there going to be many? There are different use cases. So for the use case of store of value, digital gold, I think Bitcoin is the one. Uh, it has it's built up uh, an enormous ecosystem around it. It um, it is it, it's not going to be unseated unless something happens where its code falls apart. And it's been around for 11 years. Uh, it, it, it's worth the, the Bitcoin right now is uh, valued at just under one trillion dollars. So uh, I guarantee you, there's really smart hackers trying to figure out how they can tap into it and steal that money. And then they haven't been able to do it yet. So, um, so I think Bitcoin retains that role. But there's the decentralized finance that I was discussing. That's not something that can be done on top of Bitcoin. That's really an Ethereum story. So there's a, a, a very reasonable case that Ethereum actually becomes uh, more valuable, a bigger market cap than Bitcoin three years, four years, five years down the road. If this decentralized finance and some of these other uh, applications continue to grow and, and don't get uh, regulated out of existence. So um, I guess this might be oversimplifying it and it might be a dumb question, but for people that are uh, heavily invested into Bitcoin, do you think Mm. that they would prefer that it remains a commodity or that it becomes mainstream and it's a currency? Yeah, there's different groups within the the community that want different things. Uh, A lot of the very early people in um, are, you call them Bitcoin purists. And they you know, have this vision of Bitcoin replacing the 
the global financial system. Uh, there are a lot of other people, and I, I, Paul Tudor Jones is not a Bitcoin purist. Paul Tudor Jones is a speculator who's in this to make money. And uh, I, most of the people who've come into it over the last year, they want to make money. Um, the average retail person who's buying Bitcoin today, he wants to make money. She wants to make money. Uh, that So uh, I don't know if that was the kind of the, the question you were digging into. I think so, yeah. Just like what would be more beneficial and lucrative to, to somebody who has a, a large holding in, in Bitcoin and cryptocurrency in general? Um, you know, there's a lot of different ultimate paths that uh, th- that we could see. Um, and I think that for now, uh, you know, my involvement in the space, I, I – um, I was uh, running trading and, and operations at a cryptocurrency-focused hedge fund uh, until um, about a year ago. And uh, I am doing stuff still privately in the space. And you know, my focus is that things are evolving so rapidly and, and changing so fast. So just trying to build this infrastructure and make it work and make it easier for the average person to use because it's still way too complicated. It's still far too difficult than it should be. Kevin, how, how many months before Goldman Sachs comes out with the first Bitcoin, Ethereum uh, structured note levered three times? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Are we there yet? They, they're late to the game, aren't they? Uh, <laughs> now it, it just dropped this morning. Coinbase uh, is the biggest cryptocurrency exchange in the U.S. And they're basically the main way that uh, I'd say 95% plus, uh, certainly of Americans, their first way to, to buy Bitcoin, uh, well, at least until Square and PayPal got out of the act. But it's through Coinbase. So um, Coinbase is an exchange. Uh, you could also maybe think of it as a bank, but they, uh, they're they going public on NASDAQ. And they just dropped their S1 uh, today. Uh, and they are... They've been trading in private markets uh, over the last month or so. Uh, their latest uh, valuation, so this is employees selling their shares. Uh, and there was a, a, a cross last Friday uh, through the NASDAQ private market, I believe, that valued Coinbase at $100 billion. Wow. Um, which is, if you think about that, that's a higher market cap than ICE. Has, right, which owns right. the New York Stock Exchange and, and other exchanges around the world. Right. So just to, to, to give you an idea of uh, the type of uh, valuations that are that are possible and in the, the the vision that people in the space see that you know this is it's still early. As crazy as it sounds, when you look at Bitcoin that's up a thousand percent in price since last March, to say it's still early, you know, to to uh, a normal person, that sounds crazy to say, oh, it's up a thousand percent, but don't worry. It's got another a thousand percent left to go. You know, that's the type of talk you hear at market tops. Um, so, um, you know, that's, I, I'm fully cognizant of the fact that for, for people who are not, uh, or, or who are still skeptics, seeing those kind of numbers, you know, it just, it's, it's classic top type, uh, signals, right. but I'm still a believer. Awesome. Richie, any final thoughts or questions? Um, I just uh, wanted to say, Kevin, this was uh, very enlightening. We're very Thank happy you. that yeah, you came man. on. Um, and to go back to our beginning story, um, I did check the calendar. 
Um, April 4th happens to be the day after Easter, which I will start drinking again. <laughs> April 4th happens to be the national championship of wow. basketball this wow. year. Wow. So if, I know it's a long shot, but if UCLA makes it, pal, we are going out together. Could I as long as it's your one, wall. One thing I have to interject, which has really become a street, you know, like everybody knows or used to know when Richie, when it, when the, the Tuesday, so Fat Tuesday was one of the biggest drinking nights on the street because that was the night before Richie would stop drinking for 47 days. <laughs> the big two biggest nights were the day before and the Monday after Easter. Like, yes, we would like literally it would be a caravan. I mean, in the, in the really the, when we really were talking the great old days, like in the late 90s, early 2000s, like there would just be a caravan of people following Richie around. And we usually always well, it used to be what Morton's and then it turned into Rothman's. But it was like it was like literally you would look at you go, oh, this is the day Richie starts drinking again. <laughs> So it's a second Christmas, huh? <laughs> I guess so. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Kevin. Really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. And, uh, happy to uh, answer any other of your questions if you'd like. Yeah, we definitely would love to have you back on again. I'll wear my football helmet next time in yeah. case I can crash into <laughs> the screen. Yes, please do. All right. Thanks, man. All right, guys. Thanks. Thanks. All right. Oh, he was great. Yeah, he's, he's, he's a sharp guy. He knows the stuff. For sure. makes me, he actually makes me kind of want to go out and buy Bitcoin. For sure, yeah. Is it too expensive for you right now? Yeah, I, I would buy that uh, that ETF. It's uh, G is in George, B is in Boy, T is in Tom, C is in Charlie. GBTC is the way to play it if you're not now, trying to buy the actual coin. Remember, we had that issue with the um, the grayscale ones. But remember, we were talking That's about grayscale, now. Yeah. Yeah, so is that is this is this ETF going to be different? Are they going to be able to manage the premium discount type? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, so far it seems to track it pretty well. Yeah, um, but I don't know if it's going to. It's the only one. Yeah, because I saw that, and if you remember a few shows ago, we talked about the disaster that happened with the um, the grayscale ETF that that that's supposed to track Ethereum, and right, right. it got it it. It started trading at 290% premium to the actual Ethereum coin. And then one terrible day, another 116 million shares hit the market and it dropped to 50% premium. So people got destroyed. So while Ethereum was going up, the ETF went completely in the other direction. So I was wondering when I saw that, how they said it was wild, a wildly successful um opening for uh for, for that new etf if they've done anything to fix that but i guess um we should do a little research into that and see if they've uh, done anything before people really start buying that thing yeah yeah i wouldn't wouldn't listen to anything we say here as far as financial advice. <laughs> especially, especially me especially me especially i'm not i'm not giving out anything but we do have a an, a listener email that i wanted to get to you guys um mm. <laughs> this one it tickled me a little bit um <laughs> Monkey biz show at Gmail, B-I-Z, monkeybizshow at gmail.com is the email. And Tom writes in, he says, hey, all love the podcast. Binged it the last couple of days while my fiance was out of town. <laughs> so right there, what I'm hearing is that this show is his mistress. Right on. So cool. We won't tell anybody, Tom. No. Um I got into trading securities on Robinhood a few years ago. I moved to Schwab a year ago and have been learning a lot from reading books and shows like yours. Recently, I came across something new while doing DD, which I guess is, is due diligence. 
Yeah, I think D does it. While doing DD for a family member on an OTC stock, they were tipped into they were tipped into by a less than desirable love interest. Uh, sorry, I'm editorializing <laughs> now. That's where Absolutely I start to English. go like, dude, what's with these weird, like, unnecessary details? I, I like that as a song title. That's a great less than desirable love interest. <laughs> or a band, or a band, a good band. <laughs> they were tipped into by a less than desirable love interest. I have discovered what I am 99% sure is a complete fraud and unabashed pump and dump scheme based on lies being spread by what I would refer to as their maniac CEO with a checkered past. Right on. Okay. But then the questions seem to be unrelated to that whole preamble, as far as I can tell. <laughs> My question is a two-parter. I've bought put options but never shorted. Where can somebody learn more about shorting? That's question number one. Uh, number two, in your decades of trading, have you guys ever stumbled across anything that was clearly doomed? <laughs> so uh, let's <laughs> thank you for the email, Tom. I'm sorry to, to make fun of you a little bit, but it is a little little goofy. Uh, let's we start. Are a comedy show. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start with question number one, because I, I have a similar question. He says, uh, you know, he, he's bought put options but never shorted. Where can somebody learn more about shorting? I have the same questions. How do you actually execute a short, and what does that mean? What's the difference between a put? Who wants to take okay, that? So economically, you're, you're kind of wagering on the same thing, investing the same thing. Um, you want the, the instrument, whatever it is, stock, bond, what have you. Bitcoin, you want it to go down if you're buying a put or shorting the instrument. So if it goes down, you want to be able to profit. Um, put option is pretty straightforward in that you buy a put, you can buy a put, um, you pay a premium on that option. The worst you can do if that, so you're betting that the stock's going down, let's presume you're doing stocks. You're betting that the stock is going down. Uh, if it goes down, you can profit. If it goes up, you will lose. However, with a put option, you'll only lose. The most you can lose is the premium you paid. So if so, I put so in $100 saying, you put uh, in hundred bucks. I'm saying forget Eric and his GameStop stock. I'm, GameStop's going down. I'm putting 100 on GameStop stock stock going down the most i can lose is a hundred dollars on a put correct so okay. you say okay i think it's going down from here let's say you did it yesterday before three o'clock and uh, as we discussed <laughs> the thing went up 100 percent and yeah. now it's up again your money your 100 bucks pretty much just went poof now it depends on how what how long you bought the put for you can buy them for longer periods which i like to do so you, so if something like that happens you have a little time to get it back. But for all intents and purposes, your hundred bucks is gone. Now a short is where you actually sell the stock, but you don't own the stock. You must borrow the stock from somebody. And it's usually a prime broker of some sort who will lend you that stock to deliver to somebody who wants to buy it. So where it gets tricky, and this is the GameStop situation, let's go to that. Um, you can theoretically, if you short something, it's infinite. You could lose. 
Because let's say you shorted the stock at 10 bucks. Shorted the stock, 10 bucks. Now you have to you deliver that stock, but you've borrowed okay, from the prime broker or somebody. Okay? You borrowed it. The stock goes to 100. The guy you borrowed it from is expecting the difference between 10 and 100 or something close to that. It's called margin. So you're like, yeah, okay, here, here, I lost. Here's my money. And now you're, you're back in good stead with the borrower, with the lender. And then the next day it goes to 200. Well, guess what? He asks for more money and you pay again. Here you go, bro. And then it can, as you see, which is exactly what happened in GameStop, then it goes to 300, then it goes to 400. Then it, you could just keep paying this guy until you're bust. Right. And then, you know, that's where big fails happen, where people go bust because guess what? I don't have the money. And then you end well, up in front of Maxine Waters <laughs> criticizing you. In one sense, it can be a lot riskier to short a stock than buying a put, you know, in one sense. In another sense, it may not because let's say the stock only goes from like 10 to 11, right? So you're down a little bit on your short stock, but that option might, if you're, if you're buying a short dated option, that money could still go poof. Your option premium could still go poof. Whereas you're short, you're still kind of playing the game. You're like, okay, I can do this for a long time because it only went to 11 and I think it's going to go to five someday, but you may not have the time to do that in a put trade. Now where you learn, where you learn from that, you can, you, they have tutorials on, on most brokerage sites and they'll be glad to help you. Um, but I will caution you if you're planning on a big short stock program, Tom, that certain accounts um, that you hold like retirement accounts. If you have one of those, they are restricted from shorting stocks by most brokerages. Why? Because they don't want your whole retirement money to go poof. And it's very risky. They'll, a lot of them will let you buy options. If you prove that you are somewhat sophisticated, except for Robin Hood, who could care less if who you are, you can buy options, but um, they want to be able to control your losses in the sense that you don't go just haywire and, and get banged up quickly. All right. Now on to doom. And uh, Eric, would you yeah. like to field part two of this question in your decades of trading? Have you guys ever stumbled across anything clearly doomed? Well, doom, uh, I think actually this is when we were going really good in 2008 and doom to me being I, I, I worked at Freddie Mac for, for a while um, and I understood the business model very well just because I, I worked there. Um, and this was Richie and I and um, our buddy Frank and we're all sitting around and it's the middle of 2008 and Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae are both trading in the 40s, you know, 45, let's say. And street analysts are coming out and saying, buy them. And knowing the business model, I just kind of did some quick math and it was really easy. It was, it was back of the envelope. Okay. Uh, they, if 10% of the people default and they lose 10%, meaning like when a homeowner would default and then when you go to 
close them out and, and re, you know, and, and re, you know, uh, foreclose on them, you lose 10%, meaning it was a hundred thousand dollars. You get back 90,000. I did some quick math. And then I looked at their true capital position. And I remember looking at Richie going, these guys are done already. Like they're, they're already out of business. They just, this is all hanky panky, you know, the, the accounting tricks, but they're out of business already. And, we started shorting the bejesus out of them. We were selling Freddie, Fanny, and then we said, then we started selling. We were selling Wachovia, and um, and I'll never forget. Like I don't know what it was. Sometimes I'm. I mean, I could be terrible, but so when I'm on, I'm on. And I remember being on, and it was. You're like, like the John we, Starks of trading. August. <laughs> it must have been August, and the, whenever they did the short sale ban, Richie, we were all short. We were we were shorting everything. And I remember maybe it was, I was with Frank. I talked to Frank and I said, I think we better close these things out because they're, they're not going to allow this to happen. Like we, like this has to stop. And I remember, I think we all, we, we closed everything out. And the day later they came out with a short sale ban and fucking just destroyed every, everybody who was short and stayed short got, got clobbered. Yeah. Um, so we definitely saw doom um and especially with those types of with the banks and with the the, the gses the freddies and the fannies of the world um and then negative doom i the only time i've lost a lot of money has been other people's money so the one story that i have i was thinking when i read his email about doom was um i was trading mortgages mortgage-backed securities and I own mortgage-backed securities and I hedge them with treasuries. So I'm long, meaning you own them, mortgages. And then as a hedge, if rates go up or down, I was short treasuries. And you're taking a position there called them. I was quote, long the mortgage basis, if you will. And it was October, it was October 2014. I can't remember the date. But something happened where the 10-year treasury was at 2%. It was. And all of a sudden the market went haywire. No one knew why, but the two year, the 10 year treasury went from, I think it was 2% to 1.64%. So 36 basis points in a 10 year, I mean, it dropped points, which that's, that's a huge, and it happened in the matter of minutes. Literally the machines took over. Somebody's algorithm said, buy, and you're short, right? That's Richie's point. You're short. And, this thing is going, it's going to the moon. It, it was going up in points. And I remember the guy who ran our trading desk, we had an electronic trading platform. And he literally came out and said, pull the goddamn plug on that thing. Get the fucking stop. Because it was, the machines are up, they're, they're beating the they're beating our algorithm and they're, they're lifting them too fast. And they're just buying, buying, buying. And, and so, of course, you, you have to cover. I covered and our, our year end was October, right? And there's an old ad saying, nobody ever made their year. No one, no trader ever made their year in the last month of the year, but many have lost it. And literally, that they we had a cover because we didn't know if it was going to go from 164 to 134. It was it, it went haywire. So we covered, lost three quarters of what I was up for the year, and then within an hour or two, we came back to 2%. So it wasn't an overall loss. You just lost all your gains. I lost all my gains and pretty much my 
pretty much my bonus too. So I, I did, I did, I did <laughs> your bonus so was Doom. But, but uh, yeah, so that for Doom, where you literally yeah. you want to curl up under your desk and yeah. start weeping softly to yourself, like that, like that happens. Um, so that's my Doom story. Two Doom stories. I have one, um, which was pretty interesting. So uh, I used to work at Bear Stearns with Eric, and um, got to know some of the guys and knew some pretty senior guys. And uh, this was March of 09 um, when they were in trouble. Oh, wait. oh wait, sorry, Mar- March of 08. And um, on a Friday, randomly, this guy's a pretty senior guy who knows stuff. He calls me on Friday at like 2 o'clock. And he says, yeah, we're done. I'm like, what? He goes, we're done this weekend. And I'm like, what? He's like, we're bust. So I, I didn't trade on that, right? That's he's inside, right? He, he he is inside. So sure as shit, that weekend is when J.P. Morgan bought Bear Stearns for two dollars a share. It was trading at at one point. Bear stock, I believe was at 140 right. at one point, maybe higher. Okay, so now it went from 140 at one point to two. Which so, was worth, the building that Bear Stearns owned was worth more than what J.P. Morgan was going to buy the buy their stock for. <laughs> yeah. one, of the, one of the guys, Warren Spector, who was a chief guy who, who was summarily dismissed about a year before, his, his hold... His hold of his, he had to sell his shares when he left. There was a rumor that he was going to buy the firm. Like he had enough money to buy, to pay more than $2 a stock. Like he was going to own their stock. Sounds like monkey he, business. He, he never did. He never did. But one, <laughs> and I know the guy and I won't, I won't maybe for a later date when I ask him if I can release his name, but that Monday morning, it was all done. It said J.P. Morgan takes over Bear Stearns on like Saturday night or Sunday morning. And on Monday morning, people had to report <laughs> to work. And it was, you know, J.P. Morgan now, but still the Bear Stearns companies. Somebody before work opened on Monday morning, taped a $2 bill to the front. <laughs> Thomas Jefferson $2 bill. <laughs> <laughs> to represent the share price at which the stock was sold. It was so bad. It was so bad. That they came back later. Jamie Diamond came back later and said, yeah, you know what? We did kind of rip you off. Yeah. We'll, we'll pay 10 bucks. Right? <laughs> he didn't have to do that, but he was like worried about, I guess, getting sued or whatever. But he, he paid 10 bucks. This is how much he, he snaked yeah. Bear. Somebody, somebody really but, sent the message with that $2 bill. But this guy, before he hung up the phone, telling me on that Friday, which I didn't trade on, that Bear Stearns was going down. He said, and I quote, and it took six months, but he was correct. Lehman is next. And I was like, oh, Lehman, eh? You don't work with Lehman. No, I do not. And I'm like, that's not inside information. I can trade on that, yep. which I do. All right. And, was, and they went bust. Well, congratulations. I yeah. think. <laughs> 
All right. This is a great show, man. Let's wrap it up with some Richie's picks. What are we looking at? Oh, wait, wait, wait. How's Moose? How is Moose? How is Moose? We need a Moose update. Oh, I, I a Moose update. Moose is, uh, it is Thursday. Moose is playing hooky from school. <laughs> he was supposed to go today. Today's a big day, Thursday, because the main trainer is there, the head trainer. Or, or sorry, teacher, professor. Um, and professor. Moose, Moose looked at me this morning. I must say that our time start, I probably could have cajoled him a little more to get him there, but our time start kind of interfered, so I gave up. But at about 8.30, I was going to take Moose to school, and he gave me the, I don't want to go to school look. So he, he is not at school. Um, he's he's a little bit loud, but he's downstairs. He has been barking throughout this this uh, this chat. He's telling Eric, sell, sell, sell. Yeah, I think that's what he was saying. Or, or where's my food or something. But uh, he's okay. He's okay. He'll, he'll go to school tomorrow. I, I would say uh, we've been doing pretty well with the picks. If you follow the show for the last couple of weeks, some of the good choices are flying high. And we're not talking. I'm not the guy who tells you to buy the high growth tech stocks. I'm the guy who buy, tells you to buy the stuff that people generally make things and make money and it's tangible and real. So like one of our picks from long ago, URI United rental crushing it's going. Yeah. And that's a company where you rent trucks to build stuff, right. And move stuff and build and grow and what have you. So that, that's been a good one. What about um, Boyd gaming? Should we, Boyd gaming is flying. Should we flying. still, should we stay in Boyd gaming? Yeah, I think we stay in Boyd Game. BYD is that ticker. Uh, they're a casino, a local's casino. For those of you who don't know, they own Samstown, Orleans, various hotels across the country. They've done very well. Very well. And they've been they crushing keep- with PNC, too. What's that? PNC, too. We've been crushing PNC, with PNC. Oh, PNC, right. The banking sector is doing mm-hmm. very well as, as well, as is energy. Mm-hmm. We have uh, Callum Petroleum, CPE. Charlie Peter Edward, that's been good. But uh, the the big one today, and I'm and I'm proud to say it, and I'm going back to the well as I like to say, this stock owes me money. <laughs> Go ahead. We're gonna we're gonna put a big short on the old Tesla. Oh, all right, all right. Um, nothing, wow. nothing. Um, Balls. Yeah, nothing like crazy about like the company. In the sense that I get it, you know they're still building stuff. They're they're innovative. People love them like a cult. But as we also talked about, these interest rates seem to be creeping up, and that always hurts growth tech type companies because you have to. It's for another show, but just bear in mind you discount the earnings back at an interest rate. The lower the interest rate, the discounted earnings become greater. So it looks like they're making more money in the future with lower interest rates. When it's higher, the company will look to to lose money or earn a lot less. And I think that's what's going on right now in the whole world where there's a big shift going on between what we call value, which is lower kind of think of like your boring stocks. Boring, boring, right? <laughs> Value is boring. But that stuff is coming on hot now, really hot. And the tech stocks, not that they're like faltering, not that they're like crushed or what have you, but they're definitely on a pause. 
And the next move could be down for those tech stocks. And that's not necessarily unhealthy for the overall markets. It's just a shift. So people might be going out of like the big growth stocks, like, like an Amazon or a Facebook or even Microsoft into some of these boring financials like banks, energy, you know, infrastructure, like building stuff. You know, Game stuff. That's, that's kind of like where I've been positioned. So this week for me has been really good because that shift has been going on. Do you still like AGR? Some, I was looking at that a little bit. Which one? AGR. AGR. Yeah, that one, that one hasn't done as well because uh, it's a utility and utilities generally do worse when interest rates go higher mm-hmm. because they pay, usually they pay good dividends. And if interest rates are low, people want nice, juicy dividends. But if interest rates come up, there's less of a need to buy those stocks that have the juicy dividends because now I can just get it from the bond market. If you follow. Got it. All right. We, did, we didn't play the SPAC piece. I was going to end the show with it. Oh, sorry. I blew it. That's all right. That's all right. Uh, yes, we have to play the SPAC piece that Eric uh, helped produce and write with. Uh, I, I, is that right? I don't know if you helped produce with this video. Uh, I will say that I I think I did the technical, here's what a SPAC is and here's what's funny about it and stuff. But but he, all the comedy of this thing, which is really good. If you watch it as a video, it's, it's really funny. Um, but it sounds the audio is funny to me. He he wrote the entire um, script to this. Gotcha. All right. So yeah, we'll play that here and make sure you go out to uh, is it TK News by Matt Taibbi Taibbi.substack.com and make sure you check out the finance dictionary on SPAC and Eric is going to be having a uh, an ongoing feature there is that is that correct to say yeah, to I put it that way do, actually we have another one planned um but i don't know every other week or so you know it's just um i think it's called matt and eric's financial evil dictionary or, so, or evil finance dictionary um but yeah we're gonna we're gonna do that uh, have some fun with that probably a couple of times a month i think um because there's always hijinks going on as long as there's hijinks going on in the financial markets which there always is there'll always be new segments and new things to do but yeah it was a Pretty fun. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, everybody, here on this week's edition of Monkey Business. Just a, a quick ask of you guys, if you're listening, give us a rating and review wherever you listen. It helps to spread the word about the show. Appreciate everybody that's chimed in on the emails and gave ratings and reviews already. And that's it. Thanks so much for listening. We Americans may be in decline, but we still lead the world in one thing financial bubbles with gibberish acronyms. If you like smash hits like the CDO, the CLO, the SPV, the RIAD, and the MBS, you're going to love the SPAC, or Special Purpose Acquisition Company. Think of a SPAC as like an empty bucket, often carried around by a celebrity like Shaq or former House Speaker Paul Ryan. The celebrity says, the bucket's empty now, but if you give me money today, I'll fill it by buying up private companies, will eventually take public together. Would you loan me a penny? For which I will gladly pay you back Tuesday. It seems like everyone wants you to invest in their SPACs these days. A-Rod, Colin Kaepernick, Richard Branson. Brian asked for $300 million before he even knew what for. 
Back in the 1990s, all he needed to make a fortune was an idea on the back of a napkin. People threw billions at names like Webvan, eToys, Pets.com, even Dr. Coop, companies that often barely had income, let alone profits. In 2021, people are gambling on ideas they don't even have yet. Meet the SPAC, a bucket waiting to be filled with a napkin.